Um, what Hertz has discovered is that when you rent out vehicles to someone who, get this, you're going to like it, who, who drive it for fair. <laughs> See what I did there with a, the fair driving? Ha, <laughs> ha. Um, yeah, I know. I'm the only one laughing at that one. But it's not really even a pun. It just is. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. He'll spill the wall up with our English debt. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, where we will talk about numbers as if they have meaning. <laughs> so exciting. Um, yeah. So we will um, continue our very exciting um, speaking about bear markets and bull markets and whether or not they have been spayed or neutered. Well, that wouldn't make it a bull market. That would be a steer market, actually. So we, we have a bull or a steer. Well, this, the steer market that we have currently is sort of a bull, but it's in a little bit of a correction, and it's down from where it was at the top before. <laughs> Definitions are funny. And I wanted to come in with something that uh, was in Elder Baldy's book. Um, a lot of research went into that, and I have looked at the same information. It's pretty awesome. What is a bear market? What is a bull market? Is the market fair? These are things that I hear regularly from people because it's just not a normal thing. Uh, why is a bear market bad? Why is a bull market good? All right, so I'm going to put in some historical context. For some reason, our listeners like this, probably because we like it. Um, in ancient times, well, how far back is ancient? Well, the early Middle Ages, after, after the Dark Ages in Europe. These terms are European terms. Uh, in a normal environment in old England, uh, in order for a bunch of merchants to meet to sell stuff, they had to get a license. I know this is strange. Wait, no, we still do that? What? Yes. So they had to get a license. Who'd they get it from? They got it from the local nobility. And that local noble may have to get a license from his boss or her boss going up the chain to the king to put together a large enough group of mer merchants. And that was called a fair. And the original use of the word fare is something you pay, like crossing a bridge, you pay a fare. Um, to get into the group of merchants, you had to pay your fare. And they would say, welcome to the fare. You would pay for it and you would go in. And so then the whole group of merchants gathering together got to be known as a fare, which is a place you go to spend money, evidently. Um, the term that we use for fare, is it equal, is it even, did you get the same amount that I did? didn't come into use for 200 years after this version of it. And I'll explain where that came from. So at the fair, the in order to pay for the license, so the Lord had to get a license from his boss, and that cost money. So they're charging a license fee to the merchants to be there as well, but they also had a special set of scales for measuring things. Because at this point, most of the purchases were not made using money. I know that's weird, but a lot of the purchases were made with goods for goods. It was a barter system with some money involved. So there was an extra weight of differing amounts for different 
scales of different items, and those by definition were not fair by our normal standard today. We would say, hey, if the scale always measures as if whatever you're trying to sell is lighter than it was, because the difference is what gets paid in taxes. So the fair market scale was not a fair scale by our definition, but by the definition of a fair scale, it is. I know that's really convoluted. This is what happens when we change the meanings of words over time. So the market is literally fair. That is the definition of what a market is, a fair. That's where we... (laughs) where the word comes from. And you say, oh, Jake, that's not right. A fair came from, that came from paying money to enter. Well, what do you think we're marking as we market? That's a price tag. Um, All of these words come from paying money. So when we say, is paying money fair? That is what fair means. Paying money is fair. (laughs) That's your fair. Uh, If you pay your fair share, you're literally just paying money. So come forward 120 years or so, and this word fair starts getting used in the mid-1500s in poetry and in lyrics of songs and in common parlance, meaning good-looking. She was fair of form, and he was fair of face, and the day was fair. This is like the word cool coming into existence. Cool does not mean things are good. Cool is a temperature. Well, now it means things are good or that person is extra good somehow. That's what fair has come to mean. So that first is she's fair of form. And then later, like a hundred years after that version of it, comes in the meaning that we most often use it for, which is equal. And they would say, is that the fair market value for this item? Well, what does that mean? Well, that's the auction ended at this price at the fair. And are you starting your negotiations at that market price, at that fair market price? You started, okay, that's the fair market price. So that word started getting used. This is the fair scale. Don't use somebody else's scales. They're not the fair scale. So you can see where the word comes out of this even though the fair scale is weighted so that the taxes get paid, the word fair scale led to us saying, is the market fair? (laughs) So yes, it's just as fair as it's ever been. You have to negotiate for stuff or you bid in an auction and hopefully there are rules in the auction. Well, the stock market has auction rules. Okay, so this is the first major definition is the market fair by definition the market is fair because that's what it means can you get scammed in the market absolutely do your do your research do your due diligence because the word fair doesn't mean everybody's going to make the same you don't if you're buying and selling trading cards and you're holding them for one day you're either making money or losing money If you hold a bunch of trading cards for a long term and you know what they're worth and you know who you're going to sell them to at what point in the market, somebody's still paying, but the definition of losing money or making money changes. It's not money. It's just waiting to be money. Okay, so what does that have to do with bears and bulls? About the same time period as ye old fair, and by the way, the the, the letter that we see in those old signs for ye old fair or ye old store... That Y is not a Y. You know how it has that little squiggle at the bottom? Um, That is a letter that used to represent the TH sound. I think that's fascinating. Another thing that we've lost because we see it everywhere. Ye old fair. It means the old fair or the place. 
uh, ye old country store. Usually old gets put in front of it or somewhere because you can't tell that it's old by saying ye to begin with. Anyway, um, that, that's irrelevant. Back then, an economy had a lot more to do with the environment and seasonal changes than it does today, though it still does. This is the first quarter of every year ten, on average is much slower than the rest of the year. Why? Well, because there's a lot of snow around in the first quarter. It takes longer to get things done. That's still part of our economy, but it's not as much. Uh, back then, you have a good year. You've got more than one crop coming to harvest. That's called a bumper crop. You got two. You're taking them to harvest. You've got extra livestock. Well, back then, when you had an extra bull, you only need one bull. And they didn't do steer stuff back then. They didn't they either understand it or for some reason it was not common practice to to uh, grow a male steer uh, that had been um, fixed. So they would bring a bunch of young bulls to the market, to the fair. This is echoed, it, this happened throughout European and uh, Chinese history. It still occurs in Spain, the running of the bulls. That's what that is. That's the bull market. They didn't steer those bulls. Those bulls are not fixed. They brought them into the, and there's all kinds of debates on the ethics and so on. And this is irrelevant to what I'm saying. Good years produced extra livestock. You bring that extra livestock to the market. If there's a lot of bulls there, it's a good year. Bad years, the reverse is happening. Got a drought. Winter lasted too long. Maybe you didn't get a summer this year. That happened a few times in Europe during this time period. That caused your livestock to die. What's more, it caused the critters that lived in the woods, which were much, more, much, much larger than civilization, to come out of the woods and eat your livestock. So you would hire special people to go out and catch the bears. And you would bring the bears to the market for dog baiting and for the rest of that. Instead of being chased around by bulls to get stabbed, you were fighting bears. So it's a very good pastime. You go to the market, you get drunk, and then you fight a very large animal. Probably not the best use of your time at the market, but the fair. Uh, but that's why you would have a bear market. If you have a bunch of bears and not a lot of bulls, it's because the economy was bad, because the climate wasn't good, or you had some kind of pestilence, or maybe a, a war took place and they couldn't plant the crops. So the bull and the bear, as a concept, if you have lots of bulls, it's because you're overabundant. And if you have lots of bears, it's because of the opposite. So that's the definition issue that people have. Why is a bear good or bad? And which one is the good one and the bad one? Um, I know that Chicago has sports teams named after these creatures. The only way I know one from the other is Michael Jordan plays on one. And I'll leave a pause there. Let you wonder if I'm serious. I think he won the Super Bowl, right? <clears throat> yes, our knowledge of sports is limited, but I can tell you the ins and outs and the intricacies of why we have the terms animal spirits and bears and bulls. I can't tell you why they use them in Chicago, except that there's some trading there. It's, it's not really the same trading as elsewhere. Anyway, <clears throat> here's where we are. And bear markets and bull markets, the average bear market in the last 100 years or so has been a drop of about 35%, while the average bull market, this goes over multiple years, this is simple interest, not compound interest, but the average bull market has returned about 111%. 35% average drop in a bear market, 111% average up. 
and an up market. Those are cool statistics to know, but it doesn't make it less scary when the market's down. It does. It doesn't feel good when you go in and there's bears in the market. You want to buy things and there's things growling at you. Um, it doesn't feel good to go to the market and a bull is chasing you either. So the analogy starts to fall off, fall off there. But yeah, you know what I'm saying. Um, do you have anything to add to this? I don't know that, that it's bad to have a bull. I had a bull chasing me in New York near Wall Street. He wasn't moving very fast, though. And since I was moving just a little faster than he was, it would be... Well, bronze um, bulls are notoriously guess, slow. Well, actually, he was moving at about 440 miles an hour east, but so was I, so... You're now talking about rotation of the Earth. You gotta, now you're going to yeah. have to measure the orbit of the sun. So now how many thousands of miles... Oh, man. Holding still isn't what it used to be. It's, well, it's all relative. I mean, uh, the issue is that uh, Bull you, was mo moving at pretty close to the same relative speed I was, so it didn't make any difference. Are you saying that I'm a relative to a bull? Bull something. You could be. Bull you something. Could be. Yes. Well, uh. I, wanted to, I wanted to say something that is bullish. It probably at the earliest won't affect us until 2027, but there have been some remarkable moves forward in the mass production of solid-state batteries. Yes. Now, what's a solid-state battery? Oh, it is you, a wait form a of lithium-ion battery that lasts a lot longer and doesn't blow up and burn readily. Okay. I'll throw in some, some definition there. Um, what we currently have in a lithium battery is you have layers of lithium interspersed by some type of um, charge-bearing uh, something. Now, in a normal battery, you have electrolytes. These layers are electrolytes, but it's something that bears a charge and allows the charge to leave the lithium and get elsewhere. Um, and solid state is an answer to that because that, those electrolytes are what makes lithium burn so hot. Lithium already burns, but you can put it out by taking the oxygen away relatively quickly. Well, electrolytes have stuff in it that are catalysts to burn. So solid state is both more efficient. It doesn't have to pass through multiple filters to get out to its charge state. Um, and also safer. So it doesn't burn as hard or as hot. The big thing is, if I understand it correctly, is instead of using oxygen to activate the lithium to get the electricity out of it, they use sulfur. And uh, that basically the problem with, with the lithium batteries is they don't need any extra oxygen. You can, you can smother them all you want to, and they keep burning because they have oxygen in inside them, them. Correct. If you have sulfur in there instead of oxygen, then uh, two things happen. One, they last much longer and charge better and discharge better. And two, they are far less likely to catch on fire and burn things up. Um, the Toyota is saying, I think, what were you saying? 940 miles. Yeah, on a charge. On a charge. And uh, the article I read said 1,200 kilometers, so you can choose between those if you like. But <laughs> it's about the, the same. I'm reading, the estimates I'm reading suggest um, that around 2027, automobiles probably will be, be equipped with those batteries, and that will be a huge, huge game changer because, very frankly, uh, I don't think I would want to drive much more than about 1,940 miles in a day. So I could drive as far as I wanted to drive and then charge overnight and then drive again. And that would make electric vehicles 
practical, right? At least in my opinion. Yeah, and this is there. They are the first ones that are coming that we know of that are coming to market with it because they're coming to market with it mass produ- production next year sometime. There are dozens of other competing batteries with the same energy density and in near production state, and there are thousands being researched with much greater energy density. So this is when we talk about technology is changing and we we can't count on, you know, we can't just say, hey, we like internal combustion over electric. When you can drive, uh, this is not hyperbole, there are batteries that are prototype stage that will do this already. Look up aluminum air. When you can drive more than 3,000 miles on a charge that's the old you know when i was a kid or kid when i was a young driver uh that was how long between oil changes you had and and three months or three thousand miles that's one charge of your battery no oil change you don't have to fill up your battery for three months Uh, now in that particular type of battery it you drive in and they replace the battery rather than recharging the battery. But you just drive in, they put the, they pull out the old battery, they put in the new battery, and you drive off. So obviously there's no logistics for that. We don't have facilities already set up to do that. Well, we don't have any cars to do that with. We can't have it before we have the cars. This is a chicken and an egg situation here, only the reality is that the chickens came way after eggs because there were fish laying eggs way before there was a chicken. Um, but nobody said chicken egg they said chicken or egg so it's that's the cheater's way out um but this is it you don't have the logistics the market doesn't spend a bunch of money to build a market if there's no demand general motors is seeing this currently tesla's looking at it now the the demand for electric is not as high as they were expecting well the answer to that isn't that the demand wasn't as high as they were expecting there's a lot of people that don't know about the reliability or whatever about a new electric vehicle when they go out to get a car the first time they think about whether they're going to buy an electric vehicle is on the lot actually on the lot with the salespeople because it's not something most people are thinking about i need to go get a car is not this this is one of the behavioral finance things that was earth shaking to me when i was studying it purchasing a car is generally, and this is in the well up into the high 80% of car purchases, are impulse buys. Most people, when they go to buy a car, say, I think I need a car. They go to a lot and that's what they buy the thing that they see there. This is the one I want. And for, for a lot of people, they go, well, that isn't that how you're supposed to buy a car? Well, it's a way to buy a car. I, it's not the one I would recommend. I would recommend going and doing some research and saying, what kind of car do I want? What do I need to accomplish with my car? Instead of showing up and getting sold a car and you go, man, I forgot. I was needing to drive around some four by eight plywood and I got this uh, SUV. I was going to get a pickup truck, I thought. Um, and that's a, that's a question and an answer that I hear a lot. I, people go in and they're like, man, I just forgot that I needed to get this kind of car instead of that kind of car. It's a big expense. And I would recommend people taking the time to research what you want before you go. Having said all of that, probably ad nauseum, you don't want to hear any more of it. It's causing some shock to GM, not as much to Ford, when the people show up and they go, what? There's an electric. 
I don't know if I want an electric. What does that mean? And they're doing all of their research on site. Well, I know I don't want to go 200 miles. So they don't even know what's available. And General Motors at this point is not a leader on battery charge length. And the amount you can drive on a charge, they're not a leader there. And they're seeing their sales drop off. Well, if you look at the headlines, it looks like people are having second thoughts about electric vehicles. Well, no, they just don't want to not be able to get where they're going. If you said you can have an electric vehicle that will take you as far as you want to go on a day and then it'll charge when you're not paying attention and then you drive again as far as you want to go, for some reason, people like that. You don't have to fill up. You don't have to get oil changes. Your registration can happen electronically through the system with all of that. I mean, so it's new technology. It's broken a lot. Because it's new. Uh, Hertz is running into this as an issue. Hertz, the rental car company that almost vanished during the pandemic. It's like we stopped traveling or something. Ha. Well, when they came back with extra money nearing bankruptcy, they came back and they said, all right, let's get some more money invested. Let's see what we can do. We're going to jump into this electric vehicle market. We're going to buy a ton of Teslas. Um, they had an, a contract for something like 200,000 Teslas to use for their rentals. Well, the majority of those rentals are being rented out month to month rather than like at the airport. They're rented out month to month to Hertz drivers um, that are working for Uber or Lyft. And they're bringing those things back in much more damaged than Hertz was expecting. So they're looking at their contract and going, whoa, we may not get the same kind of residual. The, the aftermarket value on these things was expected to be X and now it's Y because of the condition. Um, it's a fascinating area to look at. Anytime you're at the bleeding edge of technology, expect to bleed a little bit. Uh, but that doesn't mean that computers didn't become the primary way of doing business in the United States. Uh, even though most people said, nah, that'll be never be part of my business. Um, and we have a question from Don. We were talking about electric vehicles, so we'll hit the question from Don in just a second. Um, what Hertz has discovered is that when you rent out vehicles to someone who, get this, you're going to like it, who, who drive it for fair. <laughs> See what I did there with a, the fair driving? Ha, <laughs> ha. Um, yeah, I know. I'm the only one laughing at that one. But it's not really even a pun. It just is. Uh, the Vehicles come back in a more damaged state than if somebody's driving them in a non-commercial manner. Um, just thinking that through uh, the concept of, wait, you mean more people riding in the car over an extended period of time tend to damage it more, particularly when it's not their car? Well, you would think that Hertz would get that, but Hertz didn't. And they were surprised that the price that they were getting for a used Tesla after it had been run for a year and a half as an Uber vehicle was less than uh, what their projections had said. Because if you look at the resale of value of a Tesla all the way up to that point, resale value of a Tesla was really, really nice. Um, but that was a Tesla that it hadn't had people potentially vomiting in the back seat. Um, so that's that's where electric vehicles, the, the cutting edge, the bleeding edge where Hertz took that risk. Well, how'd they take the risk? They had to. They were about to go out of business. So they made a deal to buy cheaper cars than they could get in a normal sense. And I still haven't driven a Tesla. My brother owns one, um, but I just haven't driven one yet. I've driven in one. They're really nice. 
and I certainly would not mind being Ubered around in one, but I, would I pay more for it? Some people did for a while. No. Uh, so all that comes back to uh, cutting edge technology, even when you can look at it and say, this is the future. If you buy at the very beginning of it into the object that's being created rather than the uh, company that are making it, um, expect it not to work as well as it could. It's still better than what was before. I mean, Teslas were the first car that you could commercially buy that drove themselves at all. Uh, so if you think about that in context, you get a lot more from that kind of vehicle. I know that's kind of a rambling uh, walk around. A new technology's here. A lot of people are pointing at the stumblings and pitfalls of the bleeding edge technology to say, this is why it will never occur. And people, I, I, I would highly recommend uh, you to go back to some old newspapers uh, around the time that the Model T was out because it was really mass produced. We didn't have roads that were good for cars. We didn't have gas stations. We didn't have filling stations. It just were very few. And the government had to spend a bunch of money to give grants to people to open gas stations in weird places. They also had to spend a huge amount of money to put highways and roads in. Uh, and they were inspired to do this by Germany, who said, hey, if you get good roads, you get good commerce. And then we fought them and we went, whoa, yes, you do get better commerce and you're a lot better at doing a lot of things. So we're going to do that, too. And we did. We did it under a defense spending bill to begin with. It took a defense spending bill for us to get the logistics for internal combustion engines. This sounds a lot like what people complain about today for electric vehicles, only on a scale that is much smaller because we can still use those same roads with electric vehicles. It's just charging stations that we're talking about. And equipment manufacturers to build the parts for those cars that we've depended on other countries to build. So that's what we're spending money on, new American businesses and better ways of commerce in America. That's a good set of infrastructure spending, just almost without a doubt. When you, There's good, good infrastructure spending and bad infrastructure spending. Bad infrastructure spending is when you have a, a tunnel being built in Boston. I'll leave that there for a little bit. You can spend about 18 times as much as was originally budgeted and have it go 18 times as long. Uh, that's not good infrastructure spending if it takes you decades to do it and you never complete it. Uh, the, the bridge to nowhere is the definition of bad infrastructure. There's good infrastructure if you're allowing more com commerce. It's a good idea for government to spend money there. If you're educating a workforce to create better workers, it's a good idea for government to spend money there. Could we do that better? Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's, that's another subject. Uh, and I'm sure you've got some things that you have researched uh, I've been monologuing just because it's it's hard to pass back and forth with the lag. But uh, what do you have to discuss with us? Well, I've been listening to you and enjoying it rather tremendously. Uh, we explained this a little bit at the beginning, but I think it's important to understand. The reason the Federal Reserve chose, well, they haven't chosen, but they are almost certainly going to choose not to raise rates at this meeting in December is because long-term rates are going up. And I think it's really important to understand that the Yield curve is normalizing. It is less inverted than it used to be, uh, which which is an indication that the economy is likely to do well in the future. It, it, and it's becoming less inverted. The next the next meeting is the the thirty first of October and the first of November. 
then they've got one in December as well. But okay, it's like right. just a okay, couple so of days it's away. Coming up very shortly. I was thinking. Anyway, um, the issue is that a yield curve normally has longer maturing treasuries at higher interest rates than shorter treasuries, and that's reversed right now because the shorter treasuries are at five point six. And the longest term treasuries are out around five and the 10 year is just bumping up against five. But that's nowhere near as inverted as it was recently with the longer term rates around 3% and the short term rates at five. Now, how is it normalizing? Well, it's normalizing because the long term rates are rising. Why are the long term rates rising? Well, when the price of longer term bonds goes down, and they're paying a fixed amount of interest, a fixed amount of dollars every year, that effectively raises interest rates. Uh, it also lowers the value of those bonds. So which is the chicken and which is the egg is uh, arguable, but um, uh, that's what's going on. Why are they going down? Well, they go down when there's more selling than buying. And the biggest, probably the biggest holder of U.S. treasuries in the world is the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States. And the Federal Reserve is is allowing their treasuries to mature without replacing them. And they are selling them on the open market. Uh, not really fast, not at a horrifically fast rate of speed, but there's more selling than buying going on. And that makes sense because if you've had, and we've talked about this before, if you bought 20 and 30 year treasuries at the height of the last major recession during the pandemic, which people did, they have seen something like a 50% drop in the value of those treasuries on the open market because interest rates have come up. People are not interested in in buying interest, buying uh, long-term treasuries, well, outside of the United States, inside the United States. They're not interested in buying long-term treasuries when they've been, because the prices have been falling now for three years and this year have fallen a lot. And so people are lose, when people lose money on something and the price goes down, of course, they want to sell, which is perfectly irrational, but that's the way people are. Um, is, is this a good time to buy treasuries? I think we're going to probably see longer-term interest rates rise more. I think we're going to get back to something like we saw in the, in the 90s and, uh, and before the 2007-2009 uh, Great Recession. What we're going to see, I'm reasonably confident is that treasury longer term treasuries are going to go up around 6% eventually that's what they that's where they used to be inflation was announced this week too of the and it is holding pretty solidly at about 3.4% now what do i mean that by that the one year um, pce which is the type of inflation that the federal reserve watches very carefully it's the i always mess this thing up it's personal, personal consumption, consumption expenditure yeah. index Got it. Yeah, I got it right. <laughs> um, the personal consumption expenditure index, in, and even, the, and interestingly enough, the uh, the core one actually rose faster than the regular one. But it's running about 3.4%. And if you look at the month-to-month for the last several months on the PCE, it's running at about that same rate. So one of the things I'm sure the Federal Reserve is concerned about is inflation seems to be kind of stuck at this point in the PCE index, uh, a little above 3%. Well, is that weird? No. If you look back over the last half century, that has been approximately the average inflation we've seen in the United States. Now, would the Fed like to get it down to 2%? Oh, yeah. But I think they're they're very wise in doing nothing right now because they have done a lot of increases and it takes quite a while for their effect of their increases in interest rates to work their way through the economy. Why, why is that? Well, because if you bought something, oh, three years ago with a very, very low interest loan, you're still enjoying the bid, the, the low interest loan. And, and then one of the big drivers in inflation right now is the cost of 
shelter and rents, for example. And if you look at the, the newly renewing rents, they're basically flat. Rents are no longer going up. But if you look at all rental properties across the country over the last several years, over the last year, you find that they've been rising at about 4%. So I think it's stopped, but it's going to take a while for the Federal Reserve to see that. And inflation may have uh, ground down to a lower number. But I do still think we're likely to see longer-term interest rates up around 6% before they level off. Um, I hope it doesn't go that high. But right now, what is it, 79 I think it was, this year for right. mortgages? Right. The National Association of Realtors uh, reports and, and the Commerce and, and the Census Department or Bureau reported 7.9% average 30-year mortgage right now. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it at 6. I, I, I'm... At this point, I think that's, this is something that, you know, we had this first hour question from Inquisitor John about the Federal Reserve is doing nothing and then taking credit that they're not going to do anything this meeting. Well, the answer is, is, is really that they're doing something this meeting. They're continuing to do what they've already done. They're going to keep doing that rather than make it harsher. Uh, they're, they're selling bonds into the market. And up till now, they've been selling a lot of bonds um, in the very short-term market, which means they haven't been buying in that short-term market. Why is why is that a big deal? What what that means is that is there's more people trying to sell those investments. That means there's fewer people giving loans. If you have fewer people giving loans, you've got you know in, in the the perfect environment of just a few years ago, you had 82 different mortgage companies all trying to give you a, mo- a loan at the same time. Oh, no, no, me, no, me, no, me. I'll do better than that. I'll bring down the interest rate to this much. When you have fewer people trying to give you a loan, where were they getting that money? The money was coming in part from the Federal Reserve. They were buying up the loans after they were given to you. When the Federal Reserve stopped buying those loans, that was called the taper or the pause from the quantitative easing. When they started selling them back, it was not that they were there waiting to give you a loan. They were, they're now competing with you for loans because they're selling them into the market. And they're saying, we'll sell it at a loss. Um, so we'll accept a 7.9% mortgage, essentially. Uh, and they're also selling into the longer term part of that market now, a lot more now than they were at the very beginning when they were raising the short term rates. Now they're selling into the longer term market and that's causing rates to rise and they've got a lot to sell. So I would say, and if we look back over the last three months, we've had a massive, we have had a massive upward swing in the long-term rates. What is the, we've, we've gone from the low 4% up to 5% in the 30 and the 20 market, the 30-year and the 20-year loans. Um, and that's at the U.S. Treasuries. And we're very close to that 5% number on the 10-year. So it doesn't take a whole lot more selling. The amount of change that we've had in the last couple of months when interest rates haven't really been changed much short term. We've had a percentage point rise in those interest rates. Those that I wouldn't be a bit surprised to see that continue for the next two months and have us at 6%. Well, in that same report, by the way, if you dug deeply enough uh, and you did the math, the wages in the United States are going up at about 2.4%. Right. Now that's after subtracting inflation from the gross rise. So uh, that is 
probably going to make the Federal Reserve happy because that's what they want to see is real wages rising at a little over 2%. Uh, it looks to me like what we're doing, in effect, is returning to the normal interest rate and economic situation that we saw years ago, in the 90s, maybe. Uh, and so back then, over a long period of time, inflation was running about 3%, which is, I think, where it's going to wind up being. And long-term, uh, treasuries were going at about 6%. And I think we're probably going to be easing back into that more normal condition. Why is that? Well, we've talked about this before, but I think it's important. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns a- about songs. Uh, we are uh, a a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this st- in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also <clears throat> have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. 
Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.